The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. For 200 years, the library at Harvard College was closed to women. And then came Margaret Fuller, smashing through the glass doors, as it were, permitted to consult the books and do her research there. She was already a legend, viewed by her fellow male scholars as a peer and widely regarded as the best-read person, man or woman, in America. She so impressed Ralph Waldo Emerson, he invited her to edit his literary magazine, The Dial, and then he and his wife invited her to live in their conquered home. In 1845, at the age of 34, she wrote Woman in the Nineteenth Century, a wide-ranging treatise often considered to be the first American book on women's rights. While covering the Italian Revolution for the newspaper The Tribune in 1846, she fell in love with an Italian man, and somewhat to her surprise, she found herself part of a family structure, complete with a young child. Tragedy struck as they returned to America, their ship running into a sandbar and sinking just off the coast of Fire Island, New York. A bereaved Henry David Thoreau was among those who searched for her remains. We talked to Megan Marshall, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, about Margaret Fuller, today on The History of Literature. we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Margaret Fuller, it does not get much better than this. 40, oh, 40, 40 years old, just 40, merely 40. She had a full life in terms of accomplishments, but we lost decades of her thinking and her scholarship. And of course, she and her family lost their lives way too young. It was way too tragic. It was a very sad day when the Elizabeth hit that sandbar. But we will celebrate what we do have, this moving, instructive story of an intellectual giant of a woman who was instrumental in advancing the cause of women and the careers of women, and who was herself a scholar and editor and translator and reviewer, essayist, and general, all-around critic, second to none, a great literary person of letters. But before we get there, let's spin the wheel of chance and see where it lands us. We're talking about our Kafka project, of course, as we randomly dip into the book, Is That Kafka?, which takes us to numbers 1 through 99, corresponding to one of the 99 fragments that Kafka's biographer, Reiner Stock, has compiled for us. We plug our numbers into the great Google generator, 1 and 99, we punch the blue button, generate, and... Voila, three, Kafka's Diploma. This is in the idiosyncrasies section. Kafka's Diploma, intriguing. So while you are leisurely enjoying your break, I will maybe make yourself a cup of tea, (laughs) pour out another cup of coffee. I will be frantically reading all about Kafka's Diploma. Looks like there's a picture of it in, in the book, too. I'll take a look and report back after this.
Okay, folks, here we go. Our assignment, or my assignment, as directed by the gods of randomization, was to read number three, Kafka's Diploma. But to be honest, it was interesting, but not as lively as I had hoped. The good news is that while I was leafing through on my way to number three, my eye caught on number two, Kafka cheats on his exams. So... I'm going to give you that one, too. Kafka, it seems, was a middling student. He did not even score well in German, which is too bad for a future leading practitioner of writing in that language. Who's more famous than Kafka among 20th century German language writers? Not many, and he only earned a satisfactory in German. There's hope for us, fellow average people. Apparently, Kafka did quite well in writing, but not as well in contemporaneous speaking, which was also part of the German grade, which I guess is not so surprising for our nervous little bug. I say that with affection, of course, and also a little nod to Gregor Samsa. Probably not a coincidence that Samsa sounds an awful lot like Kafka. Okay, one can guess that Kafka's talents were not exactly drawn out by his coursework. This was high school I'm talking about, by the way. One of the essay topics was, what advantages does Austria derive from its location in the world and its soil conditions? That's the kind of question that Kafka spent his life answering, in a sense, answering while simultaneously addressing a larger point, which is, what is this doing to my soul to have to answer this kind of question? Are we being crushed by questions just like this? This focus on Austria's location in the world and its soil conditions. Are, is it squeezing all the art and all the humanity and all the life out of us? He also took classical language exams, Latin and Greek. Those were the four major subjects at his high school, German Latin, Greek, and mathematics. The classics exams, Latin and Greek, were especially formidable as they required students to translate works they had not seen before. And so the students banded together and decided to cheat. Kafka among them, as we will see. Kafka uh, confessed this later in his letter to his father. I only passed by cheating, he said, And he makes a cameo appearance in this account, which is from some unpublished memoirs by one of his classmates, a doctor named Hugo Hecht. Here's Hugo's account of what happened. Quote, It was clear that there was only one way to find out what we needed. We had to get hold of a small notebook in which our Greek instructor, Lindner, guarded these details the list of texts that each student would have to translate, all of them by authors we had never read in school. It seemed that the simplest plan was to bribe our bachelor high school teacher's young, attractive housekeeper to take the notebook out of his bag and lend it to us for a little while so that we could copy the important parts. We scraped together some money and entrusted it to one of the oldest students in our class who already had a reputation as a ladies' man making it his mission to get to know the housekeeper. This is how it happened. He took her out several times, to dinner, dancing, and to the theater. And three weeks later, we were sitting in a coffee house near his place one Saturday evening, waiting impatiently for the notebook. 
we actually got it. Copied the notes as that we'd been coveting, and an hour later, it was back in the teacher's bag. One of the copyists was our Kafka. Of course, we all passed our Greek exam with flying colors. As a precaution, we'd agreed that the weaker students would throw in a few mistakes and errors here and there to avoid raising any suspicions. The chairman of the committee was very pleased, as was our teacher. He even received a special recognition for his outstanding achievements with our rather average class, which made him proud. End quote. The teacher himself was pleased. So it was all fine, I guess, although it does raise that old question of whether a man lives a happy life if he's been deceived about the sources of his happiness, a question, as I understand it, that goes back to the Greeks. I wonder if that topic came up in one of those passages that the teacher had asked the students to translate. And if so, if it gave him a little shiver while he read their responses. No doubt he dismissed that little shiver as merely a draft from his window and rose from his desk to close it, only to find that it was already closed. Puzzled, he returned to his chair once again, and in the next essay, when he came to the part where the student translate the passage on whether a man who's been deceived about the reasons for his happiness can truly be said to be a happy person, he again feels a cold draft playing about his neck. But this time he's fine with it, because he's so pleased by the work his students have done. Here he thought they were average, but they're much better than he expected which means he must be doing a wonderful job as an instructor. Such pride is enough to keep him warm, even in a house with these mysterious drafts. Okay, that's our Kafka piece today. Number three, Kafka's diploma, and number two, Kafka cheats on his exams. Let's bring out Megan Marshall now, our wonderful and distinguished guest, to tell us about the wonderfully distinguished subject of her biography, Margaret Fuller, a 19th century American literary giant. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Megan Marshall, expert in the lives and works of New England's literary finest, including Elizabeth Bishop, among others. She's been here before to discuss her work on the Peabody Sisters and a work for which she wrote the foreword, Three Roads Back, How Emerson, Thoreau, and William James Responded to the Greatest Losses of Their Lives by Robert D. Richardson. She's here today to discuss Thoreau's first editor, Emerson's close friend, the first female war correspondent, and the passionate advocate of personal liberation and political freedom, Margaret Fuller. Megan Marshall's book, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life, won the Pulitzer Prize. Megan Marshall, wow. <laughs> Megan Marshall, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that great introduction, Jack. So you are someone who has lived a rich life full of this marvelous scholarship, and I'm curious, does looking at these 19th century Americans, as you've done, make you feel like, oh, that was an era when giants walked the earth? Or do you think, well, that was a world filled with some some old-fashioned people who didn't know nearly as much as we do today? They were pre-modern, but there, there are some people who tried really hard and had some breakthroughs that are worth discussing. Do they seem smaller than us or bigger than us, or do you see them as our size? That's a really, that's a really interesting question when it brings up the idea of the past. You know, how much are people from long ago really like us today? And I'm, I guess I'd throw in my lot with, yes, we can identify with them. So mm-hmm. having immersed myself in their lives, I don't see them as all that Far off. Yeah. In terms of distance, or certainly in terms of ideas, I think their ideas still can give us leadership today. I mean, Margaret Fuller, uh, one of the lines from her great feminist work, Woman in the 19th Century, that I like to quote is she says, the male and female, we think of it as the great radical dualism, but she says, in fact, there's no purely feminine woman, no wholly masculine man all these qualities are running in and out of each other. She sees the spectrum of gender expression the way we do today. And Mm. when I teach the book to my students, they they love learning that about her. Yeah. She does feel like she belongs in our era, or at least with the 20th century. She she seems more at home with Virginia Woolf and Simone de Beauvoir to me. She she was so ahead of her time. I, I guess she was of her time too, but it seems like she was a very advanced thinker. Well, she struggled against her time. And I think that, you know, and struggled to find a place where she would feel at home and be welcomed. And luckily, she started off in New England, where there was this kind of explosion of Mm -hmm. intellectual life. And she could get to know Emerson and spar with him about ideas. And as you mentioned before, she edited Thoreau and told him he needed to, you know, he was a rough genius and he needed to work things out a little bit before she would publish more of his work, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. But even there, she wasn't fully at home. Anyway, we can go on uh, maybe a little bit chronologically with with what you'd like to talk about. But she did end up in Europe, and I think we felt most at home there in the era of revolutions, Hmm. 1848, 49. Okay, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about before we dig into her life is, I guess this is the, the entryway I'd like to make. You called your book A New American Life, and I was wondering... 
is that a new life telling Margaret Fuller that story that hasn't been told? Or is it she's a new kind of American or that that America was new and this is a new America that she was having her life in? Yeah, good question. I thought a lot about that subtitle and Mm -hmm. anyone who's written a book before knows that spend a lot of time with your editors and the publisher figuring out what's the right thing. But this this came to me and it did seem right because I think maybe a combination of the last two mm-hmm. alternatives you offered. She seemed to be living a, a whole new kind of life for an American. I mean, she's very much born in the first 50 years of the new American Republic, but she did end up making this amazing journey back to Europe and joining in the revolutions there. So I think it was a new way of living as an American. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also was the new America and the people in New England and in New York with whom she was in a kind of intellectual coterie were very much interested in founding a new American writing or original American writing, style of writing, style of thinking. And I think they did that. Yeah, right. It almost seems like it was culturally, it's where America is starting to come into its own a little bit and intellectually. And mm-hmm. and there's this sort of feeling that, well, now we have this this fledgling nation living on this new continent, new to Europeans anyway, and this mm-hmm. feeling of, what do we do with that? Well, we better have some writers and some thinkers and some publishers over here, too. Yes, yeah, it was a very conscious quest for all of them, including Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was a friend of Margaret Mm. Fuller, not really identified with the transcendentalists, but he wanted to write the great American novel. Yeah. (laughs) And, And I think he did, The Scarlet Letter, there it is. Yeah, and I didn't realize that Margaret Fuller's got a connection to that, but let's save that for a moment. We're really, when we talk about Margaret Fuller, we're really talking about a decade or so in her 30s, which is sort of key, and it was cut short by this tragic shipwreck that I want to talk about at the end when she was 40. So let's go way back to her childhood. Her father was a lawyer and a politician. He had been a U.S. congressperson, a U.S. congressman, I guess I should say. And he he seems to have had a very strong influence on her education. Yeah, well, she was the firstborn and there would be many more children after her, but she had a a next youngest sister who died as a two-year-old. So there was a big gap between Margaret and the next child. And the father was just, he'd been a school teacher himself before he went into uh, law and politics. And, and he just got it into his head to start teaching her. And she turned out to be a genius. Mm. Um, and I think he wasn't for quite a while really thinking much about anything other than drawing out her intelligence and teaching her Latin and and then Greek. And it was almost like she was going to law school in in his office after he came home from work. He would quiz her and insist that she defend her arguments and speak in complete sentences. And so she became a really kind of a unusual child. And Mm. wherever she went, people recognized her as quite precocious. And when she finally did go to school, she was an ace. I I don't think he had a particular plan for how how this would work out. And so he would say, and others would say, she had the mind of a boy. She was studying the coursework that boys would study to get to Harvard. And and she was bettering them when she was occasionally in a co-ed school situation. And so what was she to become? She 
wanted to be their equal. She also was looking for romance, but that was not the kind of young woman her father began to realize that, uh, you know, most men would take to. And so he sent her off to a boarding school to refine her manners. And luckily, the teacher was a brilliant woman, too, and, you know, encouraged her intellectually. But uh, she suffered there among the girls who wished she was more conventional. It was kind of a lifelong conflict within her, the female and the male. And I think that's why you get that wonderful quotation. Yeah. So her father was not necessarily someone who was a educational reformer and thought girls should be taught along with boys. And I'm coming at this from a philosophical perspective, and my daughter is going to be the best example of this. It sounds like it was more no, like... No, not whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> I think just... it was kind of in, inadvertent. If, if she'd been yeah. a boy and brilliant, that would be fine. If she was a girl and brilliant, that was fine for a while. She was always grateful for for the learning, but she was also resentful of his kind of taskmaster way. I mean, she remembered that he'd come home from work and wake her up so that she would recite her lessons or go through this kind of questioning. And she was be talking about the Aeneid and these gory scenes and go back to bed and have nightmares. And <laughs> so yeah, um, right. it, it was kind of rough. Her mother was much younger than her father and quite beautiful and a little bit retiring, particularly after the death of that second child. And so Margaret really, I think, kind of moved into that position of as a kind of intellectual partner to her father. And even she was born Sarah Margaret Fuller, named for his father's mother and her own mother, who was named Margaret. But at a certain point, she said, I want to be called Margaret, Margaret alone, in a letter to her father. And uh, that was at a point when the father and mother were both in Washington, D.C. for one of his congressional terms. And I think if you were Freudian, wanted to go Oedipal on this, she was stepping into one of the roles that her mother really couldn't fill. Although, again, her mother admired her genius and she saved every scrap of paper that Margaret wrote on it because anything she wrote was original. Mm. Was there a moment when, I know her father died when she was 25, was there a moment before then where Mm. she surpassed her father, where it was, she felt like he no longer had anything to teach her or was he smart enough and that they sort of became equals at some point? Oh, that's another good question. She had very different intellectual interests than her father. Mm. And so she developed these friendships with Harvard students she happened to meet while they were still living in Cambridge. And with a particular friend, James Freeman Clark, uh, started to learn German. They were learning, uh, reading the German romantic writers, Goethe. And this was really not any interest to her father, although to his credit, he didn't discourage her from it. But she was really giving herself her own education after, Mm. really after she started going to school as a teenager, he kind of stood back except to ask that she become the school teacher in the family to her younger siblings. And of course, that cut into her time teaching herself. But there was a point, and it's curious, her very first publication was a a letter to the editor of a a Massachusetts newspaper about, uh, in response to an essay by George Bancroft, who was going to be the great historian and was on his way towards that. And he'd written something about the Republican ideology and Rome and Caesar and Brutus. And she objected and her father, the two of them objected to his representation of Brutus. And she wrote this letter and got that published. And it's interesting that uh, her father, who had actually 
retired from politics and moved the family to a farm in Groton where he planned to write the history of the United States. That was his plan, Mm. which he never got started on. But he could have written that letter, but he encouraged her to write it. Mm. And I think left her with that kind of sense that he supported her as a writer, even though he died really not not too long after that and turned out that he didn't have much of an estate and she was going to have to work for a living and help, in fact, help support the family. So her life changed dramatically then. Yeah. And... It was a, a turning point, which, you know, it's not clear what she would have done if, if she'd continued as a sort of hothouse plant in her father's house. He promised to send her to Europe sometime, but that kept receding to right. her chagrin. Right. And she wasn't headed for marriage. And she found teaching. I guess that was probably one of the few professions available to her, or it must have seemed that way to a young woman, but it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like she really took to teaching. No, not in the standard sense. I mean, and in fact, even her opportunities to teach were, were unusual to start with, but her first teaching job was for Bronson Alcott in his progressive temple school, and she saw right away that he was not making any money, and she wouldn't make any money, and she didn't want to teach for nothing. So then she joined up with the move to Providence, where there was a progressive school called the Green Street School just opening. And she taught there, had a huge responsibility for, I think, 60 girls, and focused mainly on the older girls, and began to refine something she later called the conversations, a style of teaching where you draw out the, the ideas. You know, you might give some expository statements, or she would, about Greek women of Greek myth or um, whatever the subject might be. But the main thing was to get these young women and later adult women to speak their minds, which is something, again, she was grateful to her father for teaching her to argue and to make a case and uh, form thoughts that she could express, which was not part of women's education conventionally or even much of anyone's education. Yeah. Uh, so so she felt very strongly that the deficit in other women and tried to draw them out and enjoyed starting that off in her classes in, in uh, Rhode Island. But she quit that pretty quickly. And although she was always tutoring in languages and making extra money that way, she began to try to make a living as a writer. And then with these conversations that she began in Boston in 18. 18- 39 for 25 women, and she managed to charge a considerable amount. I mean, it's just quite amazing that she's even without, I mean, she, at that point, she published some articles, but this reputation of hers as a great conversationalist and a, a brilliant mind was kind of universal and was something she could trade on in the end. Yeah. She became known as the best read person in New England, male or female. Well, it's, I'm trying to think who said that, but I think one of her uh, transcendentalist friends. But mm-hmm. yes, a lot of it had to do with the wide reading in, in various languages that she did. And Emerson and Thoreau, I don't think, ever really learned German. And Margaret Fuller and other women like Elizabeth Peabody and Mary Peabody were doing a lot of translating that facilitated the male acquisition of these ideas. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I'm trying to remember now who said that about Fuller. Maybe you, yeah, maybe you I, remember. But I've only seen it um, as it was said that. 
Oh, we're uh, almost suspicious of that as biographers. <laughs> um, well, now, I can tell you that uh, that Emerson said she was the greatest conversationalist he ever met. Right. Um, so. Right. Which is is probably closely related. I mean, I'm I'm sure a lot of that yeah. was because of how well read she was. So I didn't realize. Yeah. Did you say that the conversations were people signing up for those? Were they paying? Were they subscribing to? Oh yeah. Oh okay. So yes, they subscribed to a whole series of classes. I don't right. know if they call them classes, conversations. And she was making in the end not such a different income per session from what Emerson was making in his lectures, it's been figured out. So it was her way of paying the rent. And she ultimately set up a household with her mother and the siblings who were still uh, not yet off at school or her sister finally married, but she had one sister and I think four brothers. And yeah, for a while they were living in Cambridge near Harvard, where one of the brothers was in college and she kept that household going. Mm. And needed to. And she found a lot of women who, it, it was drawing women who also had similar interests and were educated themselves and maybe not quite her equal, but close. Yes, that, that was her hope, was to have great conversations. And she uh, sometimes got them to write essays and collected those. Uh, later, she became the editor of The Dial, and some of the writing mm. for the conversations ended up in The Dial about the nature of Woman. I mean, when she started the conversation, her idea was to get women to ask, she said, the great questions, what were we born to do and how shall we do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was aware that women's place in, in society was changing and that women wanted it to change. I mean, it was a time when there weren't colleges for women and there weren't women in the professions. And of course, that became one of her most famous statements in Woman in the 19th Century, uh, you know, let them be sea captains, if they, if you will, um, let all arbitrary barriers should be set aside. So she was trying to encourage women to step out of their, the common course. And she was also aware that not only herself, but there were, you know, a great number of single women, particularly in New England at the time. And what were they to do? She didn't think they should continue in the expected, you know, living with their families and taking care of nieces and nephews, and that there was much more to be done by this cadre of of women. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then let's come back with this moment when Emerson invites her to be the editor of his journal, The Dial. Okay, we are back. Megan, so 1839, Ralph Waldo Emerson asks uh, his vivacious friend, I think was his description of her, to edit the Transcendentalist Journal, The Dial. Before we talk about The Dial, what was their relationship like, Emerson and Fuller? Were they were they frenemies? Were they, I, I read once that they laughed. Emerson said, she made me laugh more than I liked 
which I wasn't sure what that meant. If he wanted to be more serious than he than he was, or I I di- wasn't anticipating that she would make him laugh. I guess. Uh, so, what were the two of them like when they met? Yes, I think she was in probably the more lively of the two, and uh, and more challenging. I mean, she she mm. was looking for intellectual equals, and I really dislike. In fact, I read it just again recently. People will often say, kind of casually, "Oh, she had an intellectual crush on." Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, as if he was so much the superior, which initially she, of course, would acknowledge he was older, he was giving these lectures, he was well known, but she was always looking for someone to to be her perfect friend. And Mm. he, in a certain way, was too. He was just puzzled as to how to be a perfect friend of a woman. That Mm. was not really how he imagined a perfect friendship would be. But in fact, I think she was that for him. And when she died, he, you know, at 40, he was maybe about 10 years older. I've lost in her my audience, Mm. which again, people often say that's kind of um, lighting. But I think she was the person on whom he could try out his ideas Mm -hmm. because she had that the mind of an equal. There wasn't anyone else like that in his circle. Yeah, she just. It had that questing and questioning mind. So, and Emerson had set up his household in Concord in such a way that he could have long-term guests. So she was one of those who would come and stay for a week or two weeks or more, and maybe she'd be working on an article while there, and they would work in her, the room that she used. The guest room was across the hall from his study, and sometimes they would go just back and forth and chat, or little Waldo Emerson, the oldest child of the Emersons would sometimes pass notes between them. Um, And it was a fascinating, very intimate, intellectual relation that was, it wasn't romantic, but it did, of course, attract the jealousy of Emerson's wife, Mm. Lydian, who felt that while she was visiting, Waldo was taking these walks with Margaret, and uh, she was being left with the household to run the household and felt a bit taken advantage of, but right. one key moment when she burst into tears over lunch as they were discussing the walk that uh, Waldo and Margaret were going to take as if she weren't even there. But, mm. you know, um, Emerson had been a minister, and I always think that ministers had at the time, for better or for worse, and I think usually for better, uh, they could become friends or they could have these kind of close relationships with the women in their congregations mm-hmm. um, and women look to them for leadership and that kind of support and so i think that was his view that in a certain way margaret was in his secular congregation and uh, what was lydian's problem <laughs> with this yeah yeah but of course a lot of what they were talking about was gender relations and marriage and they would go off on these walks and waldo would say you know i don't think marriage is really uh, <laughs> meant for most humans and she would say yeah i i, I agree but you know what are you going to do now <laughs> More or less. So, right um, right i think they had a notion for a while that that waldo as he was called and Margaret and some of her younger friends would have a kind of intellectual commune together, uh, a constellation, they called it, or a compact. And, but then a couple of them got married and it fell apart. And both Waldo and Margaret were, were disappointed by that and, and began, in a way, that was the beginning, I think, of Margaret ultimately going in a different direction and, and leaving New England. Yeah. 
But the dial, we didn't get to talk about the dial. You know, she'd been publishing in various literary journals. And, you know, everyone knew that she could write well. And Waldo thought this would be another source of income to start a magazine, which was the Journal of the Transcendentalist Club, which ironically kind of fell apart, the club, around the time this journal came out. But so he did think that she was the one to do it. And and most of the members of the Transcendental Club were disaffected ministers who were spending their time disputing points of religion. And that's not how he saw this journal and certainly not how she saw it. So um, she became the logical choice. Hmm. other than Bronson Alcott, who couldn't organize anything. So, yeah. And you say that she was never a joiner. It seems like she had a sort of, I don't want to say uneasy relationship with transcendentalism or transcendentalists, but maybe just an uneasy relationship with the idea that that she would fit under one single umbrella, whether that was transcendentalism or or Unitarian Church or anything like that. Others seem like they were eager to define themselves and have have colleagues who thought the same way and, and all of that. And she seems more to kind of want to take what she agreed with and and disregard the things that she didn't agree with. But she doesn't seem to have wanted it to be laid out for her in a kind of systematic way. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, she said, if you want, you can call me a transcendentalist if by that you mean someone who's you know, seeking their own truth and mm. and uh, hanging out with Emerson and, and others like that. But it's not that she's part of a club. She didn't feel it. And she didn't, you know, there was a strand of transcendentalism that was oriented towards establishing utopian communities. And there was Brook Farm and just outside Boston and Bronson Alcott's Footlands a little farther out into the country and, you know, many other such places. There were, she had a great friend, William Henry Channing, who was a minister and part of the associationist movement and trying to set up communes up and down the East Coast. And she didn't want to go live in such a place. I think she was wanted to live by her own lights and not be part of the community. But she did, when she went to New York, later, New York City, where she was invited by Horace Greeley to become the first page columnist for the New York Tribune, which was a paper that was distributed actually nationally, not just it had a daily component, but also a a weekly edition that went to, I think, something like 50,000 readers, which is a lot in those days up and down the East Coast um, and, and out towards the West. You know, she became very interested in institutions and how they worked for or against their the people they were intended to help. So she mm. spent a lot of time visiting women's prisons and and um, mental hospitals and orphanages, and she became interested in, you know, communal efforts of that sort. She felt that the, these communities could be positive for the people who happened to need to be there, and she was instrumental in helping establish a, a house of refuge for women who were on their way out of the prison system and trying to find their way back into society. And that was a big part of her woman in the 19th century. She began to learn about the women in prison who were often what now we would call sex workers. But why was it that they had to take up this kind of work to get by? Was it really their fault? Why were they the ones in in jail and not the men who were um, hiring them out and And she wrote, actually, you know, what's really the difference between a woman of means in her boudoir, powdering her nose and putting on her jewels to attract a 
husband or keep a husband who will keep her? How different is that from a woman who is, you know, more openly selling sex? It was quite a thing to say in Mm, 1845, and woman in the 19th century, which is a book that grew out of one of her big essays for the dial. So I should say for the dial, she was the editor, but she wrote considerably for it. And the essay that she wrote called The Great Lawsuit, Man Versus Men, Woman Versus Women, was Mm -hmm. really a stunner. Greeley saw that and it was his idea she should turn it into a book. I mean, her idea was one that's very familiar to us now that the what we think men should be or women should be is very much counter to the individual man or individual woman and what each one might want to be. And she was arguing for fullness of being. Yeah, right. So man versus men, woman versus women. She's saying that the individual needs to uh, become self-dependent or remove themselves from the influence of fitting into their assigned role. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very much. So, right. you know, that's, again, something quite modern for her to recognize. Right, um, right. I mean, you could almost imagine a book having that subtitle uh, today, almost, where yeah. are we, over 150 years later. But it's also interesting that she phrases it as a lawsuit, lawsuit. given her education by her <laughs> yeah, father, her father. The, the lawyer, and, and the you know insistence that she be able to make an argument. There she is making her argument. Right. It does have that feeling to me of somebody who needs to kind of establish their bona fides uh, in the in the outset. It's got a lot of history, a lot of a lot of facts go into this. It's not just a a brief uh, call to arms or manifesto or something, but it, it, it's got a lot of weight to it. Yes, the book added some biographical sections and call to arms, uh, a recognition of the women of the anti-slavery movement and passages about the women in prison. That that was all added to the kind of intellectual scaffolding of the initial great lawsuit. And it was a very successful book. It sold out its first edition in a week, and it was published in England very quickly. And it was controversial. No, you know, there's a lot of criticism. And one whole section of it is about marriage and what the different types of marriage that might be actually helpful finally to women. Many people criticized her saying, you know what, she's not married. How can she talk about what a marriage should be? But she responded that, in fact, not being married enabled her to have a perspective on this. She wasn't Mm. implicated in this corrupt institution as she uh, the corrupt contract yeah. <laughs> of, of most marriages. So let's skip over a little bit. We're running out of time because I do want to get to the yeah. end. But I know she did a bunch of traveling around America. She went to Buffalo and Milwaukee and, and so on, wrote about that. But then she went to Europe, and that represented a real change in the course of her life when she was in Europe. Yeah. She, she interviewed some some literary stars like Carlyle and George Sand, and, and that seems to kind of fit right in. But then she fell in with some Italian revolutionaries. So what happened there? Exactly. Uh, Well, I I think, you know, Georgetown was important because she was someone who was very flagrantly defiant of sexual mores Mm. and had Mm -hmm. lovers and Chopin and all of that. Um, And there was actually a Polish revolutionary she met in France, um, Miskiewicz, a poet who was 
I mean, there are all these sort of literary revolutionaries around. Mazzini and one was in exile from Italy, and uh, Miskiewicz in exile from Poland. But in 1848, these countries began to assert their independence from outside influence, and Mazzini was able to come back to Rome when Margaret had landed there on her travels, and she had gotten to Europe. I mean, many people say, oh, she was writing letters for the Tribune. That wasn't supporting her. She was actually working as a governess to a family that Mm. was willing to pay her way over. But she parted ways with them, said she wanted to stay on her own. She would try to make a go of it. And that was largely because she had met one night in 1840, I guess it was. They'd landed in Rome in Easter week, and they were in the Vatican attending a service, and she got parted from the family she was traveling with. And this young man took her by the elbow and said in Italian, are you lost? Can I help you? And of course, she knew Italian enough to answer that because she knew so many languages. And that was Giovanni Angelo Assoli. He fell for her. She fell for him. She shed herself of the traveling family. And after a summer, you know, up in the Lake District, came back to Rome and rented a Place and had this secret love affair, and that was what she finally, you know, she wanted. She was thirty-seven, and she'd wanted to experience all of life. And for a brief while, this was just ideal for her. She's living on her own. She didn't feel she'd met women who were having romantic alliances with men they weren't married to, and that seemed fine with them. So she would do it too. But and she also, you know, she was older. She had had various health issues. I don't think she thought she would get pregnant right away, but she did. Hmm. And so then there was a problem. (laughs) Uh, What to do? We know this problem. And she also had wanted to have a child of her own. So she had no ambivalence about bearing the child. But should she marry this person who was much younger? She didn't want to tie him down. Would she even survive? Would the baby survive? Hmm. And she was writing for the Tribune and the Italian Revolution had broken out. And she was, as she wrote, this is my America. You know, she was there when the students and the intellectual rebels of Italy were gathering together and trying to make a unified country and get rid of the Pope's influence. And she wanted to be part of that and very much was writing about it and then ultimately engaging in once there was a serious war in Rome, working as a hospital nurse, running a hospital for the wounded. So she did have this baby. She did survive. Yeah, The baby survived little Nino, and she gave birth in secret and left the baby with a wet nurse so that she could go back and do her writing. I mean, it's a very, again, a very modern story, and it's never been entirely cleared up whether she married, although she began to describe herself as being married once she had the child, and I think she probably wanted to be married, whether it was possible or not under these circumstances in wartime, and to do that, I don't know, but I think it's a little bit like the case of Mary Wollstonecraft, who married once she was going to have a child. Mary Wollstonecraft didn't survive that that birth. But And of course, Wollstonecraft was a hero to her. So why not follow in that path? Yeah. Motherhood seems to have been something that opened up things in her, that she she felt like it was a gain. Yes, indeed. I mean, she had cared for her own younger siblings. She knew how to look after kids. And in fact, the very youngest of her siblings Edward had died as a baby in her arms. She'd been kind of assigned the care of him, and he's not a not a healthy 
little boy. So I think this is kind of making up for that loss. And again, she was arguing her fullness of being, wanted to experience everything. But she was surprised. I think she was most of all surprised how much she enjoyed being a family and having this turned out, you know, Giovanni Angelo Asoli was a really great husband <laughs> and, mm, and yeah. very supportive of his of his brilliant wife. I mean, his English wasn't great, but he wasn't going to hold her back and he adored her yeah. and very good with their little son. So the only problem was that the revolution failed and her money ran out and they had to come back to the U.S. And she wrote to her friends who were many of them scandalized by what was going on. I mean, she said they were married, but she was very clear that they hadn't been married when the child was conceived and that she decided to marry after that. And that was the whole secrecy of it was just more than anyone could bear practically back mm. there in yeah. New England. So many people were writing and saying, don't come, don't come. And she, I think, didn't receive most of those letters. But yeah. In the end, they were on this ill-fated voyage of... All three. Yeah, all three of them died just off Fire Island in a huge storm that just drove the ship onto some shoals, and mm. the surf was fierce. They weren't so far from shore. I think they thought they would be rescued, and they saw people on shore, but the rescuers, the people they took to be rescuers, were really scavengers looking for what might come to shore from boats that frequently wrecked on those same sandbars. So, yeah. Say among those scavengers, yeah. Thoreau was there. Emerson urged Thoreau to go to see if he could find uh, any yeah. bodies. He, he wasn't there effects. right away, though. He, yeah. he was. He arrived a few days later. Um, and But certainly, yeah, they all drowned. Some people survived the wreck. Some people were able to swim to shore and Little Nino's body was washed ashore, but Margaret and Giovanni, no one ever found their mm. remains. Um, that was what Thoreau was looking for and looking for any papers that might have washed ashore. There were letters and some artwork that she had purchased in Rome, made it to shore, but no remnant of a book she had been working on about the uh, uh, revolution in Italy and no Margaret or Giovanni. So it's just a terrible, terrible tragedy and widely reported. And Horace Greeley sent up his best reporter, Ambrose Bierce, to write about it. And poems were written and statues mm. carved. And um, Margaret's great friends, Emerson and James Freeman Clark, with whom she'd learned German, and William Henry Channing, the minister I mentioned, um, gathered together and very quickly assembled a kind of a memoir of Margaret Fuller, uh, the story of her life with passages from such letters as they'd been able to find in journals. And that was a huge bestseller and perpetuated this story of the brilliant, precocious woman who could converse better than anyone and right. gave her all to her whole life, her whole short life. And it, it was quite widely read, very successful. George Eliot read it and in England. And, you know, they, in this book, tried to kind of cover up some of the more scandalous aspects of her life, but they did present her as finding love in the end. And people were happy uh, about that now, happier than perhaps they'd have been if she showed up yeah, <laughs> covered right. in scandal. Right. Um, so I want to end where you start in your book, because I think it helps us see not just Margaret Fuller's life, but what it means to study a life. Like Margaret. So you, you have this mm -hmm. very vivid anecdote of you in the archive, the astonishing privilege of reading this journal that washed ashore after the shipwreck, 
It's her last known journal, and you open it up, and a note falls out. And what do you see on that note? Yes, yeah. Um, there's a note that says, nothing private, no, uh, merely public events. Yeah. And it was clearly written by somebody later, a little index card such as you or I might use, somebody who had made a judgment about this journal as it was reaching the archive or as they were studying it for use and maybe even in that uh, book by Emerson Clark and Channing, you know, that everybody was looking for what went on, what went on. Was she married? Was she, yeah. Um, yeah, and um, but she had such a public life. She was a public personality. She was engaged in all the, you know, would anyone say that about George Washington if he kept a journal of right. Congress that he oversaw, you know, no private events here, you know? Yeah. Would, would anyone you complain? Be disappointed, um, would you say merely public events when she had such yeah, a public life yeah. and she met such famous people, she was doing such famous things and, and her writings are so uh, transcendent. Yeah, I had thought actually that I wanted to kind of respond to that by giving a, you know, just writing about the public, the public Margaret Fuller. But as I began to research, I saw that the personal is political. And that was very true for Margaret Fuller and for the people of the transcendentalist era. So I, I didn't want to sort them out. And I have to say, despite my complaint about that little index card, one of the things I'm most proud of is having really mined the material that other scholars have assembled in the recent years to find out exactly what did happen with Giovanni. I think it is possible to know not so much whether they married or not, but when did they meet and where were they entertaining themselves, one might say, in Rome in the fall of 1847 when she decided not to go back home. That can be found if you look and read carefully the evidence. So if anyone's looking for the private. You can find that in my book, too. Mm. And uh, we appreciate that. And uh, and so did the Pulitzer Prize Committee. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, the book is called Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. It's, I would say, a classic of its kind. Megan Marshall, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Megan Marshall for joining me. Her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life, is available everywhere you buy books and is well worth your time. Speaking of which, I hope we will be worth your time in the days and weeks ahead. We're going to have John Higgs back to discuss James Bond and the Beatles. That's one to look forward to, and we will look at Nabokov in his years of exile when he was a passionate film-goer in Weimar Berlin. We have Willa Cather soon, and William Faulkner too, and the reading habits of four early black Americans and what we can take from that today. And here's a recommendation for you. Check out Jane Austen's Persuasion if you haven't before or if it's been a while. We have a three-part episode on that book on our horizon, which is going to be very fun. It's well worth your time, I think. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.